So Mark chapter 11 this morning, if you are taking notes, let me encourage you to create two columns. One column on the left, you could say would be enemies of God. And on the right column, you could call it friends of God. And underneath each column will be two points. And we're trying to ask this question this morning. Are we living as enemies of God or friends of God? Are we living as those opposed to the way of God? Or are we living as those who are devoted to God and following his way? And I know you might hear that and say, well, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not worried about that. Let's work itself out. Let's, let's see God's word and what this looks like. So we're going to have enemies of God and two points under that. Friends of God and two points under that. And then at the end, I want to come back around to this question of how do we in life relate to people who set themselves up as our enemies? You may have people in your life right now that they are just opposed to you. You feel like the relationship is broken with that person. You feel like everything you say and do is wrong. You feel like there's a split that's happened. Or maybe they're just being a bully. Maybe they've just completely set themselves up against you and your family. And so you're trying to deal with this question theologically of how do I respond to people who are opposed to me, who are rejecting me, who are acting as my enemies. And so we want to make sure we form this gospel theological foundation, and at the end, we're going to come around and ask that question, how do I relate to my enemies? What does it look like based on this scripture? So here we go. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. It says there, sorry, verse 27, end of Mark 11. It says, Jesus and his disciples, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, this is probably Tuesday of Holy Week. You have Jesus. This is the third time he's entered into Jerusalem. He came in Sunday, Palm Sunday, on the donkey. Monday, he comes into the temple, and he judges the temple based on that fig tree that he cursed and that withered. And then this is Tuesday. This is the third time he's coming back into the city, back into the temple, and he's confronting these religious leaders who have been opposed to him all the way along. So let's find out what happens in the next, next verse, verse 28. These religious leaders, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? If you are a Bible underliner or Bible highlighter, you're circling the word authority, you're underlining it a couple of times, this is the word that makes sense not only of this story, but honestly, it's gonna make sense of the next two or three chapters in, in the Gospel of Mark. This question is being set up here, who's the boss? Who's in charge? You guys know at my office over here, right outside my office is the playground where our little weekday preschool kids uh, are out there. I hear you're not the boss of me quite often <laughs> through, through that window. So the kids are out there on the playground and you can hear they're trying to divide up responsibilities and who's in charge of the game today. And like the question of authority matters when you're on a preschool playground. Like who's in charge, who's determining the game, it, it's a big deal. But there's also a great teaching opportunity here. And, and I want to back up for just a second and let's do a little bit of historical cultural background that's going on in this passage that I think would be really interesting to you. And, and as I do this, let me just say thank you for being a church that cares about God's word. Thank you for being a church that wants to learn these things and understand what's going on. And so what's happening in this verse, you have to understand it within what's called an honor-shame culture. When you're thinking about the New Testament, 
when you're thinking about what's going on in Scripture, and especially at the time of Jesus, you have to understand it within what's called an honor-shame culture. Now, if you really want to jump into this, if you, you love this study, and, and let me make sure I'm telling you what you're getting into, because this is a three or 400 page book, and it's kind of like level two, level three type work, but if you love this type of research and want to do some more, there's a book that's called Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, by a guy named David De Silva, um, and you can probably find it on Amazon used or something like that, or there's a second edition that's come out. So if you really love this, jump in. But here, here's what I would want you to know this morning if you're not interested in reading a three or 400 page book, okay? So here's, here's what I want you to know about these verses that we're studying in the Gospel of Mark. If you take worldwide cultures and societies, you can almost divide them into three distinct groups. There's cultures based on guilt, cultures based on fear, and cultures based on shame. So we live in the West in a culture that is primarily built on the idea of guilt. So I've done something wrong, I feel guilty, I incur a debt, I need to be forgiven. This is the idea that we live in. We live in a very guilt-based culture. Think about maybe your grandparents, how they treated you, your parents, or you're made to feel guilty about things. This is kind of the religious background that, that we grew up in, and we grew up in a guilt-based culture. There are a lot of cultures around the world that are fear-based cultures. So this prim primarily is found in more South American, Latin areas, or in African areas, and it's the idea of, I am scared of these spiritual powers. I'm scared of the power of death, I'm scared of superstition, I'm, I'm scared of these demons that are out there, I'm, I'm worried about my ancestors, and so it's all driven by this idea of fear. Then, in a lot of Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures, it's driven by shame and honor. So does my family have a place of honor? Are we considered honorable in the community? Are we considered honorable in society? We have a higher level than somebody else, and it's all about honor and shame. And so to understand honor and shame culture, you either need to have grown up in a Middle Eastern or Eastern country, or you need to have gone to middle school. Okay, so uh, if you've ever gone to middle school, this is essentially how it works as well. There are divisions of honor. This person has a place of honor, and this person is lower on the social status, and this person can sit at this table at lunch, and this person cannot sit at this table at lunch, and it's that kind of idea. And you can gain honor either because it's assigned to you at your birth, you were born into a wealthy family, you were born into a family of high standing, so it was ascribed to you, it was, it was given to you, or you can gain honor when you achieve something, when you do something great, and so your honor rating goes up uh, in, in society and it allows you access to other places. Now here's the key for understanding what this has to do with Mark chapter 11. When you meet somebody else who is on the same level of honor that you have in society, when you run into somebody else, it causes a conflict, and usually there's a challenge there. And oftentimes what that challenge looks like is it becomes this verbal sparring match where you're trying to get at the other person. You're trying to lower their honor status, or at the same time, they're trying to lower your honor status. Now, this is exactly what is happening with Jesus and these religious leaders. He is coming in here, and what's Jesus doing? He is claiming a high level of honor. He's entered the city as the king. He has done things and said things that put him on the level of God himself. 
Jesus is claiming for himself this level of honor that the religious leaders say, he doesn't deserve that. He's just this low-level guy from Nazareth. He he's not, doesn't have this level of honor, and so they're challenging Jesus about this. Now, how does Jesus respond when he's challenged? Verse 29, Jesus said, okay, you're gonna challenge me. I'll ask you a question, and you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Okay, Jesus is really good at this. He's growing up in the society. He knows how this works. His honor, his authority is being challenged, and so what Jesus does, he links himself back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist who came preaching repentance, preaching the coming of the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, think about this, how did you treat John the Baptist, JTB, when he came? How, how did you respond to him? Verse 31, so they discussed it with one another. The religious leaders, imagine this. Okay, you've got two groups in the lunchroom, middle school, who are, who are having this like standoff about honor, and one group challenges, the other group responds with kind of a mic drop response. <laughs> and so this group has to like huddle up and think, what are we gonna do? Like, how are we gonna do this? So they huddle up in verse 31 and say, ugh, if we say that John the Baptist had power from heaven, he's gonna say, why didn't you believe him? So if these religious leaders admit that they didn't follow John the Baptist, even though he had heavenly authority, that makes them look like they missed the boat. <laughs> they missed the coming of the kingdom of God. Then verse 32 flips it around. But the religious leaders say, if we say that John the Baptist, that his authority came from man, oh man, they're afraid of the people, for all the people held that John really was a prophet. So if these religious leaders, if they say John the Baptist was just another guy, he wasn't a prophet, he didn't have any, any heavenly power, they're gonna turn the crowd against them. And they're gonna find themselves in a bad spot because the crowd thinks John the Baptist is great. So what do they do in verse 33? They panic. <laughs> so verse 33, they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, let's be honest here. When they say we don't know, do they really not know? Oh no, they absolutely know. They just can't admit it. You know, every guy in the room feels the pain of this moment right here. Like every husband, uh, every father, we, we know the feel of this. Like when you know you're wrong, but you just can't get the words to come out of your mouth. Like they just, they won't come out. And you're like, uh, I just, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know where I put that. I don't know why I did that. Well, actually I do know, I just can't admit it. My, my shame and my embarrassment and my pride won't let me admit it in this moment of what's going on here. Enemies of God, point number one. The enemies of God always pridefully reject Jesus' authority. How do we know that someone is living as an enemy of God, opposed to the way of God? The enemies of God always pridefully reject God's authority over their lives. We have this pride, we have this shame, we have this idea that I can control my life, I can handle this situation, and we end up pushing back against God's word, pushing back against God's goodness. This idea that when we think about salvation, 
one of the hardest things that keeps people away from salvation, one of the things that keeps people from coming to church, keeps people from turning to the Lord, is it's just really hard to let go of your pride. It's really hard to get to a point that you say, I don't have my life under control. I can't fix this situation. I'm not in charge of the universe. I can't control other people. We know those things to be true. Like, it's not hard to actually believe those things. It's just really hard to admit those things. And to come to a point that we stop pridefully rejecting Jesus' authority over us. So what do the friends of God do? How do you know that you are following God, that you respond to him? The friends of God humbly receive Jesus' authority. The friends of God reach a point where they say, I don't have it all together. And I can't hold my life together. And I can't control the universe. And I can't control other people. And I need God's authority over my life. I trust him. I trust his word. His word has authority over our lives and our church and our world. He has authority over my schedule and my relationships and my money and everything that I do. He is Lord. I am not. When we're talking to little kids about salvation, one of the things we teach little kids to say is Jesus is the boss. Jesus is controlled. Jesus is the boss of my life now. Guess what? That's a really good adult thing to say too. Where we get to the point that we say, Jesus is the boss of my life. He has all authority. He's in control. I trust him. Which means I can't do whatever I want to do. I can't do whatever I want to with my body. I can't do whatever I want to with my money. I can't do whatever I want to with my time or relationships. He's God. I'm not. So the enemies of God pridefully reject that. We just can't lay down our pride. The friends of God say, I humbly receive Jesus' authority. I realize that he is Lord, I'm not. Now, watch what Jesus does with this in chapter 12, okay? Watch what happens in verse 12, or chapter 12. He's gonna take this idea, and then he's gonna take it to the next step. Chapter 12, verse one. He began to speak to them in parables. We haven't heard a lot of parables in Mark for a while, but he's coming back, he's gonna speak to them in parables, and he's gonna speak to them about a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and then went into another country. Now this parable that's set up here, it's really effective because it works on two levels. The parable works because the people Jesus was talking to, they would have understood this situation completely. It was very common in the ancient world at the time of Jesus that you would have an absentee landowner. You would have someone who owns this land far away, he puts servants in charge of it, he expects them to have a crop, to make money, to do things, and then every so often, the absentee landowner would come and check in on things. You might have examples like this in your business, you might understand what this feels like, you give somebody responsibility, and you say, I'm gonna come check on you later, I hope you did your work. This is that, that idea. It also works though, and write this in your Bible if you don't have a note about this, it also works because it's picking up on a parable from the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter five. So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving them something they would understand, but he's also drawing this imagery from the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of verses from Isaiah five and you can read the rest of it later, but look at how Isaiah chapter five begins. Isaiah five begins, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Ooh, you would see these religious leaders Jesus was talking to, when they heard vineyard, 
They know their Old Testament really well, their Hebrew Bible really well. This is Isaiah 5. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. Verse 2, he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5, you have a parable, a story of a landowner who develops a vineyard, and it doesn't produce the type of crop that it's supposed to produce. New Testament, Mark chapter 12, Jesus is confronting these religious leaders, confronting his enemies, and he says, hey, let me tell you about a story about a vineyard and a landowner, and they would have known this story. Now watch what Jesus does. Watch what Jesus does back in Mark 12. Verse 2. When the season came, this landowner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, in verse 3, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. They didn't have any fruit to give. They hadn't been doing their job. They neglected their vineyard. And so when the servant comes to get the crop to take it back to the landowner, they don't have anything to give, so they just beat the guy up. Verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. The word that means without honor. These religious leaders, Jesus is saying, are acting without honor. They're not receiving the servant that comes. Verse 5. And so the landowner sent another servant. And now they don't just beat him up. They, they kill him. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. Are you seeing the pattern? <laughs> There's a pattern developing here. The landowner sends servants. The tenants don't have anything to offer. They don't like the servants who are coming, so they beat them up or they kill them. Verse, verse 7, no, verse 6, sorry. Verse 6. He had still one other that he could send, a beloved son. And so finally he sent him to them, saying they will respect my son. That phrase, my beloved son, that phrase shows up two other times in the Gospel of Mark. Both times when God speaks from heaven, once at the baptism, once at the transfiguration, when Jesus tells this parable about a beloved son being sent, there's no doubt about what he's talking about here. Here has come the landowner's beloved son coming to the people. What are they going to do to him? Surely they'll respect him. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? So when Amanda and I were talking about these verses this week, go with me on this, I say this kind of half, half jokingly, but we were talking about, okay, what will the owner of, of the vineyard do here? The first thing he's gonna have to do is hold his wife back who's ready to go and take care of things at this point. Because you sent your servants, and they got beat up and killed. That's one thing. And now you sent our son, and he was killed. And now the wife of the landowner, like, she's going to go take care of things. <laughs> so he's like, whoa, whoa, I'll take care of things. I'm, we're going to make sure this is dealt with. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will come and bring judgment. That... that don't miss something here. If that feels unjust or surprising to you there, remember the patience that the landowner has shown up to this point. This is not responding with a temper. 
This is not out of control wrath. This is righteous anger. This is righteous judgment given after a time of incredible patience. And notice the way Jesus tells this parable. He's not calling for revolt. He's trusting in the landowner to take care of this. He's not calling on the tenants to get revenge. He's saying the landowner will take care of this situation. And then he quotes a scripture for them. Verse 10. Have you not read the scripture? They've read it hundreds of times, but they don't understand it. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The son that you rejected and killed, he will become the cornerstone. So what do they do in verse 12? They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. No kidding, of course, like that's exactly what's going on. They perceived he told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Second characteristic of the enemies of God. They violently reject God's son. The enemies of God pridefully reject Jesus' authority and they violently reject God's son. That when God's plans are being carried out, when God is sending his servants and ultimately sends his son, how do the enemies of God reject? They reject with violence. They turn against the way of God, the people of God, the plans of God. Now you might be here and say, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. I'm not a Christian. I'm here listening. I'm here with friends or family. I'm here out of respect. I'm an enemy of God. I'm not being violent toward other people. I'm not being violent toward God. I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying in that. But don't miss how quickly our hearts can grow hard. You may not be violent, physically violent, but you have anger and apathy and bitterness toward the things of faith, toward God. And so as we think about this idea that the enemies of God are violently rejecting God's Son who has come, we have to think, what is our response to the Son of God? And let me say something right here just before we move on and we talk about the friends of God. This idea that the enemies of God are violently rejecting God's Son, this idea of the enemies of God acting with violence, we do need to think about the fact of it being sanctity of human life Sunday today. How are you able to see when people are being opposed to God's ways, to God's plans, to God's purposes. When they are acting in violence toward those who are most vulnerable, that is a sign of someone being the enemy of God. And so we recognize that and we say we want to push back against it. We want to say that those who are most vulnerable, those beautiful children in the womb, they deserve all dignity and honor and protection. We don't act in violence toward them. We say they are a gift given to us from God. And so this idea that the enemies of God react violently against God's son and God's plans and God's people. What do the friends of God do? Well, the friends of God joyfully receive God's son. The friends of God say, this is the cornerstone of our life. This is what we have been looking for. This one who came as God's son, he is the very cornerstone of our lives. He is the one we will build our church and our lives upon. Don't miss the irony of this. When the religious leaders reject God's son and they decide they're going to kill him, when they reject God's son and decide to destroy him, that rejection of Jesus is going to lead to the cross, 
which is going to lead to the resurrection, and their very rejection of God's Son is actually the pathway that will allow them to have a pathway to salvation. Their rejection leads to the cross, and the cross is what makes possible salvation for the enemies of God. And if you are in here, if you are in here as a Christian, and you say, I've never been an enemy of God, hold on, (laughs) because Scripture would say otherwise, that every one of us in our sin outside of Christ was an enemy of God. But God loves to turn his enemies into friends. And how does he do that? He does it through his son Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection. That's where we find hope. That's where we find salvation when we trust him. When we live with faith and we live out that faith and we have fruit in our life and our lives aren't eaten up with violence and vengeance and apathy and anger and all these things that turn us against the way of God. Enemies of God, pride, violence. Friends of God, humility, joy, all based on Jesus. So let's ask this question as we wrap up. How do I relate to my enemies? How do I relate to my enemies? We see, we see the gospel at work. This morning, I pray that if you're an enemy of God, you would become a friend of God, you would know the gift that God has provided through his son Jesus. But we have to ask this question, How does this gospel truth flow out into our relationships? What do you do when there are people in life right now that they just don't like you? They're speaking badly against you. They're acting against you. They've cut themselves off from you. How do you deal with people in those types of situations? Let me walk you through a couple of things I I hope would be helpful, and you can take these home and, and think on them and discuss them later. First, make sure that person is actually an enemy. Make sure you're not dealing with a situation that's just a misunderstanding or, or just a situation that you've uh, misperceived what was happening. So you're going to them, you're doing that Matthew 18 work and saying, okay, help me see clearly what the issue is here. Are we really at odds? Is there something going on here that, that I need to be aware of? So we're making sure we have a clear understanding before we overreact. Number two, there are some people that just refuse to be at peace with you. (laughs) There are some people that you can do everything possible and they still don't wanna have peace. They're still going to act against you. They're still gonna set themselves up uh, as your enemy. This Romans 12 verse, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. You do as much as you can to develop peace in your relationships and at the end of the day, you realize I can't control other people. I can't make them change. Okay, let's go on from there, point three. What do we continue to do? Well, when somebody sets themselves up as your enemy, we don't respond with violence and vengeance and revenge. That's not the way of the people of God. And you might say, well, I'm not gonna be physically violent toward my enemies, but don't, don't forget, we can be violent with our words, spoken to them or spoken to other people. Jesus says, where does anger start, Jesus says? In the heart. And so sometimes you might have such deep bitterness towards someone that it begins to grow violent within you. You wouldn't let any of it out. You wouldn't show it to other people. But there is this violence and vengeance and bitterness that's building up inside you toward other people. And that's not the way of Jesus. Instead, we're going to say, I'm going to trust God to deal with. I'm going to trust God's timing and God's plans in this situation. I know he's at work. He may not be working in the way I want or the speed I want, but, but I know he's at work. Vengeance is the Lord's not mine. I'm going to trust him with that. So what do I do in the meantime? 
I pray for my enemies. I bless my enemies. I do good for my enemies. I share the gospel with my enemies. Everything that feels so counterintuitive, the hardest things imaginable is I'm gonna pray for them, I'm gonna speak well of them, I'm gonna do good for them, and I'm gonna make sure I'm sharing the gospel with them. And then this last point is so important. I'm going to stay faithful to what God has called me to be and do. When you have someone who's acting like a bully towards you, when you have someone who is speaking badly of you, who, who's causing difficulty in relationships, what that person really wants to do is hinder the quality of your life. Like they're trying to stand in the way of, of you being able to live your life. And so the response is not this passiveness. If you're in a dangerous situation, we're gonna help you get out of that. We're not saying to stay in a dangerous situation. If you're not sure what to do, we need words of wisdom spoken in our life. But here's what you're not gonna do. You're not gonna allow someone who set themselves up as your enemy, you're not gonna allow that person to dominate your life. And you're not gonna allow that person to stop you from doing what God has called you to do. You're not gonna allow that person to stop you from living with faith and to stop being fruitful in life. And so we're gonna say, yeah, this person doesn't like me. Yeah, they're speaking badly about me to other people. Yeah, they're trying to mess up all my relationships. But that is not going to prevent me from being and doing what God's called me to be and do. I'm going to continue to press forward. And you might think, how in the world is that possible? It's the miracle of the gospel. Because remember, what's the power of the gospel? The power of the gospel is that God loves to turn his enemies into friends. The power of the gospel is that every one of us in our sin was separated from God, and yet he sent his son to die on the cross to take our sin and then rise from the dead to destroy death so that we could become his people, his friends, his worshipers. And as we experience that, it impacts every relationship we have in this world. This morning, are you living as an enemy of God or a friend of God? Where are you in your relationship with God? And how do you need to respond to the enemies in your life? During this final song, one of these songs that we sing together at Emmaus that we love, I know you love to sing, and we're going to sing it out and worship to God. During this final song, is there someone you need to pray for? Is there someone that you've grown bitter toward? Is there someone that you know the relationship is broken, and God is simply calling you to trust him? And to pray for that person and say, Lord, would you provide a way forward? You've made us your friends. How do we show that love to people around us? The power of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these, these Bible stories that show us how you work in the world, how you work in our lives. God, I pray that our church would not be a place of pride, or violence, but our church would be a place of humility and joy. God, would you, would you lower our personal pride? Would you take away those feelings of bitterness and vengeance that come up within us toward other people? And God, would you make us a people who are humble and joyful because we've experienced the good news of Jesus. And God, as we become humble, as we become joyful, it changes how we treat other people, especially how we relate to our enemies. And so, God, as we sing this song, as we think about the Lamb of God who's given his life for us, God, as we worship you over the next couple of minutes, 
Help us to know how we need to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.